Would you open your Bibles this morning to Matthew 28? Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. Many of you will recognize as a passage of Scripture we call the Great Commission. Jesus' Great Commission. To set the scene, Jesus has lived the life that we know from the Gospels. And he was crucified, died on the cross, buried and rose on the third day, and then had a number of what are known as post-resurrection appearances to his disciples and to followers. And amidst those appearances, he gathers them together to speak to them. He gives them a commission, a challenge, assurance, a promise. And we will study those words today. We talk about three requirements of the Great Commission. And the Great Commission, we might say, well, what is the Great Commission? It is Jesus' commission, a command to share the gospel with all nations, all peoples. It's been said that missions is to the church as burning is to fire. Without going on the mission of sharing the gospel, the church is not the church. And that the reason that missions exist is because worship does not. In a group of people in which there is no worship of God, there needs to be a mission in order that they may worship God. Our purpose as Southview Baptist Church is to grow Christ followers. And we talk about that as growing Christ followers within this place in order that we might go outside of this place and seek to win new Christ followers and grow them as well. But when we talk about the world and we talk about the nations, the Joshua Project, which is a nonprofit uh, Christian evangelical organization, says that there are over 16,000 unreached or 16,000 people groups in the world. Now, you'd think about that and you'd say, but there's not that many nations in the world. Exactly. Because within a given nation, there may be many people groups. For instance, the nation of Nigeria, which is one political nation, actually has within it over 540 different unique ethno-linguistic people groups. Almost one-fifth of all Africans live in the nation of Nigeria. If you meet an African person and you want to guess where they're at, you can guess Nigeria and you have a one in five chance of being correct. But 540 unique people groups in the nation of Nigeria, 16,000 unique people groups around the world. And of those unique people groups, it is estimated that 4,332 are unreached, 3.1 billion people. And then there is a further subcategory called unreached, unengaged people groups. And that's 2,612. The task of identifying, we've done that, but penetrating the remaining unreached, unengaged people groups for the gospel is the greatest challenge that lies ahead of the church in discipling all nations, all peoples. Yet we can be assured because Scripture reminds us that a great multitude that no one could count 
from every nation, tribe, people, and language will stand before the throne and worship Christ Jesus. Amen. Our scripture memory verse for the month reminds us of that. And that scripture memory verse there is in Luke chapter 2, verse 14. Let's say it together. Luke 2, 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace to those on whom His favor rests. Luke 2, 14. His favor rests on all people. He desires that all would come to faith in Him. Scripture promises us that. So if you've got your Bible open there to Matthew chapter 28 and you're able to stand with me in the honor of reading God's Word, would you do so? And we'll read Matthew 28 verses 16 through 20. Matthew 28 verses 16 through 20, the end of the chapter and even the end of the book. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to a mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him. But some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to these words of Scripture which are familiar to us. We know them as the Great Commission. Many of us have them memorized and they come to our mind reminding us that there is so much more to this life than our day-to-day existence. Not only the people groups around this world numbering 17 billion or 7 billion individuals, but also the glory that you desire to have through them, that someone from every tribe and every tongue and every language would someday worship you in eternity. And God, as you give us a part of that, would you help us to take it seriously? We thank you that you are present among us and you will speak to us today by your spirit through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone says, Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We've got three requirements that the Great Commission asks of us. And the first one on your outline this morning is recognition. Recognition. It's not about me. It's not about me. Some of you have read that book. It's, oh my, 20 years old at this point in time. The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. And the first line of the first devotional in that book is, it's not about you. It's not. Even though we are born to feel that life is about us, and the way that we uh, come into life demanding things our way, uh, by nature when we're a baby and we can cry because we can do nothing else, uh, in order to get the attention of our parents that they might feed us or change our diaper or give us attention or whatever it is we want, That same sort of selfishness, if it isn't challenged to grow in maturity, follows all the way through someone's adulthood. And it doesn't matter how old you are, you can still be quite a selfish and immature person. But the Great Commission 
reminds us to consider that it is not about us. To consider that God is sovereign and Jesus is his son and our life is to be given over to the worship of him. Consider the words of John 6, 25 through 29. It says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I assure you, you are looking for me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. What can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. Jesus replied, this is the work of God that you believe in the one whom he has sent. Jesus can do miracles. Jesus can make bread out of nothing. And we might follow Jesus in a very selfish way about ourselves, thinking about what we need. But what Jesus calls us to do is to think about who he is and the reason we should follow him. Second Peter 1.16, you might write that reference down talks about how powerful and majestic Jesus is. It says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter is declaring to those he's writing his epistle to that he saw Jesus and he saw that he was sovereign and he recognized that Jesus was it and he wasn't. That Jesus is God and he's not. Your sub point there says that Jesus declared all authority is given to me. Jesus declared all authority is given me. Now you might have wrote that one in already from verse 18. Because it's got quotes around it. You can fill in the blanks just by looking at the scripture. But look with me. Then Jesus came to them and said. The them were the eleven disciples remaining. And even among the eleven who had walked so closely with him and known him so well, they worshipped him, but it says in the end of verse 17, but some doubted. That's a blog post or a sermon for another time. All of us have our moments when we doubt Jesus, when we doubt God's sovereignty. It's part of our humanness to lack faith, to be challenged by a situation when we realize we can't do something. But would I, I need to remind us that it's in those very moments when we realize we can't, that God can. And he puts us in those situations in order that when we are challenged by doubt, we would turn to faith. That's the response we should have. And we should remember at that time that Jesus said in this great commission, but it applies to all of life, that all authority has been given to him. Would you turn with me to Colossians? So you're in Matthew, turn to your right, get all the way through Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, amidst this amazing section of uh, Paul writing of the supremacy of Christ, but I want to focus in on verses 18 through 20 as it speaks about who Jesus is. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. And it says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. 
Did you see that? The so that? So that in everything he might have supremacy. Everybody say in everything. What does Jesus have supremacy in? Is there any area in your life that he is not supreme, that he cannot touch, that he cannot move, that he cannot change? He's got supremacy in everything. For God was pleased to have his fullness, excuse me, I left out a key word, all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself. Reconcile means make right, balance accounts. To reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus has all authority. Jesus is supreme in everything. He has all God's power in all things. And how did he do that? By his blood shed on the cross. Today we observe the Lord's Supper together. And the juice that we will consume is symbolic of the blood of Christ, which we see reminds us of the supremacy and the authority of Christ. So understanding that it's not about me and recognizing that we have a question to consider. And that is, how often do I consider the eternal destiny of others? If we were honest, most of us don't consider the eternal destiny of others all too often, do we? We just go through life taking care of ourselves, meeting our needs, doing what our spouse asks us to do most of the time, trying to get our kids to do what they're supposed to most of the time, doing what our boss says most of the time. And we don't often consider the eternal destiny of others. That every person is created in God's image and every person has a soul that is eternal that will be judged and will either go to heaven or hell for eternity. And we neglect to consider the fact that we have a responsibility to share the gospel with them. Not just to say, oh, I'm a good Christian or I wear a a cross on my necklace or there's a Jesus fish on the back of my car. But to share a verbal witness that invites them to trust Christ as their personal Savior and Lord. We don't consider the eternal destiny of others. But we should. It's about being selfish versus being otherish. And it's that otherish, supernatural sort of love that's God-powered, that's other-focused and self-sacrificing that calls us to consider others above ourselves in the way we spend our resources, the way we spend our money, the way we spend our time, the way we give our energy. How often do we consider that eternal destiny of others? The second major point on your outline that we learn as a requirement of the Great Commission is obedience. That it's all about Jesus. Obedience. It is all about Jesus. Jesus has already stated to us in the passages of Scripture we've looked at that it is all about Him, that He has all authority and all ability. John 14, 21, you know I love that one. Turn over and look at that one. So you're in Matthew. Go, or, or, well, you might not be in Matthew, but turn to John if, with me, if you will. John 14, 21. Jesus says, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. 
He who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love him and show myself to him. Obedience and love go hand in hand when we're talking about Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And if you were to go back to 1 John, written by the same John who wrote the gospel, you hear a couple verses that are somewhat similar. 1 John chapter 3, verse 24, he writes, Those who obey His commands live in Him, and He in them. And this is how we know that He lives in us. We know it by the Spirit He gave us. How do you know you're saved? Because the Holy Spirit is within you. What does the Holy Spirit do? He helps you understand Scripture. He helps you make decisions. He convicts you of right and wrong. He guides you. And the presence of the Holy Spirit is evidence that you are saved. And He helps us to obey. 1 John chapter 5, verse 2 says, This is how we know that we love the children of God. By loving God and carrying out His commands. So not only does loving God or obeying God show that we love Him, it shows that we love His children. And obedience reminds us that it's all about Jesus. Your second point, or your sub-point here under obedience is that Jesus commands us to go, make, baptize, and teach. So back with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And in verse 19, he says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. You've probably heard me say before that at verb make, that participle is primary. And secondary is going and baptizing, and teaching. We go in order to make. We baptize because we have made. And we teach because we have made. But you probably may remember a sermon I preached, was it a year or two ago, that the better translation of the Greek verb there is not make, but when. You can even scratch through on your outline where it says make. Just put one line through there. It's most often translated make in our modern translations. But historically, it was best translated as win. To win disciples. That we have to go to share the gospel in order to win folks from their way of life and their religious understanding to trust in Christ as their Savior and Lord. That winning and making go hand in hand. Jesus says in John 12... 25 and 26, that whoever loses his life, uh, excuse me, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. We're commanded to go to win people to Christ to baptize them, and to teach them. Your application question here says, how do I respond to the eternal destiny of others? When we've considered the fact that every person on earth has an eternal soul that's going to go to heaven or hell based on their relationship with Jesus, and we've considered the fact that we have a command to go, to win, or make, to baptize, and to teach, how do we respond to that eternal 
destiny of others. It's appointed for every person who's ever lived to die once and after that to face judgment. Hebrews 9.27. You can write that one down. That hell is as real as heaven. And lost without Christ is lost without hope. How does this fact impact our daily living? We can be reminded of God's sovereignty and His love by Psalm 138.8. Write that one down. Psalm 138.8 that says, The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. Lord, Your love is eternal. Do not abandon the work of Your hands. That God and His sovereignty is at work. And He's not going to stop working until He finishes His purpose to redeem humanity. And someone from every tribe and every tongue to Him. So we've talked about recognition. We've talked about obedience. Number three on your outline is effort. The Great Commission requires recognition that it's not about me. The Great Commission requires obedience. It's all about Jesus. But the Great Commission requires effort. It's whose power? Jesus' power at work. Now, this may seem a little strange to us because you already watched that video about the Bagbies. And you heard them say that they have to hike sometimes for two weeks and the conditions that they are in, that snowstorms come, that avalanches happen, and they have to go to great effort to share the gospel. But here's my question. Does the effort of the Bagbies change someone's heart? And cause someone to trust Jesus as their eternal Savior and Lord? Or does God's effort by the Holy Spirit in convicting that person change their heart? We've got another video to show that has a couple of the same clips. But it shows you a little bit more about what they go through to share the gospel that lost Tibetans may trust Christ as their Savior. God's already promised His kingdom is coming. He's going to establish his reign on this earth. But we have to choose to do exactly what he's asking us to do, to make a difference for his kingdom through his power. My hope is that we're going to see God's kingdom built and established in Nepal. Most of the highest mountains in the world is where the Tibetan people are. A little over 20 ethnic Tibetan groups throughout Nepal. But I just kept thinking somebody needs to go to these people. God was saying, yes, somebody does need to go. That person is you. God's called us to go as a family. Having kids is such an extra blessing. God uses them in so many incredible ways. Some of our areas takes over two weeks of travel. Landslides happen and block the way. Weather changes, and on a dime we can get caught in the snow. They don't stop us from sharing the gospel. To be Tibetan is to be Tibetan Buddhist. Underneath there, there's a lot of emptiness. There's just so much suffering in this life. And the only way not to suffer is to not exist. There's no security, no way to be sure what's going to happen. Four months after we came, the house started shaking. We were coming off the ground, up and down. We went outside, and at that point, it became real what had happened. At the time of the earthquake, one village that had been completely covered. A glacier broke, caused this huge landslide. Covered it in 100 feet of rubble. 
Almost every single person from this people group was dead. This was one of our people that we were focused on. And I was reminded at that point of God's promise that someone from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation will be at the foot of Jesus. Part of my story. We have a team from our home church joining us on this journey. My sending church has been a vital part of my story. I was discipled from this church. Without them, I wouldn't even be here. I will be trekking for three days, demonstrate our love and care we have for the people of this valley, <laughs> just helping them rebuild their houses. Everything was wrecked, everything was destroyed, everything was ruined. I had nothing in one moment. Boom! Everything was changed. But God is using that earthquake. God restores people. God makes things new. To start fresh spiritually with a relationship with Christ. People had never heard since they come to know Him. We have an opportunity to share in a way that we never could have shared. We have that hope to give people. So don't waste those opportunities. Use it for what God has for us to do. Don't waste this opportunity. Use it for what God has for us to do. You have one life. You may never go to Tibet, but you have neighbors, you have friends that need to hear the gospel. Effort is Jesus' power at work. Your subpoint there says that Jesus proclaims, I am with you always. I am with you always. We are tempted to believe that He is not when we do not feel as if He is with us. But if He promises that He is with us and we don't feel He is with us, our feelings are what's betraying us. Because we have God's Word that is sure that His promise is true, that He is with us always in any circumstance, and most particularly, When we're sharing the gospel, Jesus is with us always. We consider Jesus' request, His command to His first disciples, if you were to go back to Matthew chapter 4. And in Matthew chapter 4, in verse 18 and 19, Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 and 19, and I'll have to preach a separate sermon on this. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, so we were just at the end here in Matthew 28, but at the beginning, in Matthew 4, 18, Jesus is walking beside the Sea of Galilee, and He saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting their net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed Him. They were obedient immediately. But He said to them, come, follow me. David Platt, the president of our International Mission Board, did an interesting study that I read about that when Jesus says, come follow me, if you were to read just the Gospel of Matthew, from Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through the period we're here in verse 18 where he says, come follow me, that there are 20 different descriptions of who Jesus is. So when Jesus says, come follow me, he's not just saying, come follow me, Jesus the dude you don't know who's from Nazareth in Galilee, he's saying to them, come follow me, that I am the center of history, the Savior, the righteous judge, the light of the world, the hope of nations. And when you follow me, you are giving yourself to me and trusting me that I am with you always. So your application question asks, what can I do 
to impact the eternal destiny of others? What can I do to impact the eternal destiny of others? Now, this question is similar to the last question at the end of point number two. But this one is about where the rubber meets the road and what are you going to do to impact the eternal destiny of others? How are you going to change the way you live your life, change your thinking, ask God to change your heart, that day after day you would be reminded of the lostness of friends and family members. Day after day you might think about how you can make an impact in the lives of people from nations and tribes and tongues you'll never meet. The Great Commission requires our recognition that it's not about us. The obedience that it's all about Jesus and the effort that it's His power at work, but our surrender to His power. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we recognize that we can't, but You can. We cannot go around the world. There's not enough of us. There's not enough time, there's not enough money that we as one church would go around the world and share the gospel with every person from every tribe and every language. But we're part of something greater. And that greater thing is the body of Christ. All believers of all nations Different denominations, different languages. And as part of that greater thing, we are thankful that it's not only about us, but it's about you moving in the hearts and lives of brothers and sisters around the world to share the gospel with countless billions that still need to know about you. So, Father, we're thankful for that. But at the same point, we recognize that we have a responsibility And that responsibility is to respond to the Great Commission. To recognize it's not about us. To know that it is all about you. And to make our effort an effort of surrendering ourself in order that your power might be made known. So God, it's our prayer that by the offerings we give, the prayers we give, that you would continue to move to touch the lives of the unreached around the world. And God, it's our prayer that in our lives, you would give us both grace and courage to share a verbal witness of the gospel with people that we know that are not yet saved. And Father, we pray that if there's a person here today who has understood their sinfulness, that all of us have sinned and fall short of your glory, God. And they desire to trust you and accept the gift of God through Christ Jesus to be saved, that they would make that decision today. Whatever it is you're calling us to, Father, would we obey as we come before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.